0: It's my pleasure to introduce Professor Guy Hulsby, who's going to be the speaker this evening. He is Professor of Civil Engineering at Oxford and has been in that post now since 1991. He first studied Engineering at Cambridge where he graduated in 1975. And then went and worked for civil engineering consultants for a couple of years before returning to Cambridge and undertaking his first doctorate at Cambridge which he obtained in 1981. He moved to Oxford meanwhile in 1980 and was variously a research assistant uh, becoming a lecturer in the 1980s then full professor in 1991. He carries out Research in a wide variety of civil engineering-related areas, notably geotechnics, shallow foundations, jack-up platforms. Um, is looking at marine renewables with a novel uh, marine energy device. Is looking at um, hyper um, plasticity and has written a book on the subject in the context of soil mechanics and is gradually branching from soil mechanics, geotechnics, into structures and hydraulics, making all of us kind of edge back as he <laughs> takes over the subject. About five years ago, maybe six years ago, Professor Hulsby obtained his second doctorate. So he has both a doctorate from Cambridge and Oxford, which I think is quite an unusual combination. And his doctorate then was, in, was a doctorate in science. That's enough for my introduction. I'd like um, to hand over to Guy, who's going to talk to you about an early structural connection, an early structural problem, the Oxford connection. Thank
1: you. Anister was very anxious that I should correct anything he got wrong. He only got one fact wrong, and uh, that was actually, uh, when I got the DSC, that was actually my third doctorate because if, if you come from Cambridge uh, you can incorporate your degrees when you come here and so I, I waited until I'd got my PhD before I incorporated my degrees. So I got a free DPhil from Oxford which is completely fraudulent. Um, never mind. Uh, thank you for coming along. Um, yes, I'm, I'd like to talk about an early structural engineering problem. This is intended to be a very light talk. Um, this is nothing to do with my day job, it's just a hobby interest It has a little bit of engineering, a little bit of architecture, uh, a bit of art, a little bit of mathematics. Uh, It's it's a mixture of various different things. But it's the sort of thing that I hope would be of interest to engineers. First of all, can I acknowledge all sorts of people in all sorts of ways who've contributed through... um, Snippets of information that they've given me, leads about uh, things that I should follow up, uh, helped in, in a variety of different ways. Uh, there's not time to go through them all, but uh, if I've missed anybody out, uh, then I apologise. Um, I've, I've tried to uh, tried to get them all in, in there. Right, what, what do I want to talk about? The, the particular structure that I'm going to talk about is, is known as a reciprocal frame or sometimes as a a Surleo frame. Um, And I'll explain what I mean by that uh, in a few minutes. I'm slightly anxious about the fact that there are several people in the audience who know a great deal more about this than than I do, Um, and they won't need telling what it is. And first of all, I'd like to follow that through how it appears in literature, uh, going back as far as about 1270. Uh, And then perhaps of more interest to engineers, follow through some examples in in construction, which turn up in in Italy, uh, in the UK, and also in the US. And then I'd like to pick up in more detail on the role of one of the Oxford connections, and that's uh, John Wallace, who uh, analyzed a rather complex version of the reciprocal frame. And I'll argue that, effectively, that's the, the very first modern structural analysis and then finish off just with a few examples uh, of where the reciprocal frame turns up in other places. So, first of all, to explain what what goes on. Suppose you have a structure, and uh, you want to put a floor on top of that. How would you normally go about that? Well, you would probably put some beams across, uh, and then, uh, filling in the gaps between the beams, you'd put some rafters, and then, on top of that, you can put some flat planks that form the floor where does the reciprocal frame come in well suppose that you have uh, beams which are too short um, I don't know if, the, if anybody knows the the Flanders and Swan sketch in which uh, it's the the two prehistoric men talking on the morning that that they've just seen stonehenge has been built Um, and that there are various different things that go on in the sketch but at one point they say one of them says the other and I'll tell you what you'll never get a roof on that and I'll tell you why you won't find twigs big enough okay so the reciprocal frame is is for the problem when you can't find twigs big enough so that's obviously not going to stand up so you can lean it on another beam um, and that's obviously not going to stand up so you lean that one on another beam and that's not going to stand up But at that stage, you can put the final one in that rests on the first beam. And this is why it's a reciprocal frame that the the four beams mutually rest on each other. Just a a sort of minor point of engineering detail that if you form the joints as they're shown there, you're almost cutting right through the beams. And what you'd actually do would be uh, form that joint a slightly different way. You'd you'd, um, either do a house joint of that source or, or perhaps a mortise and tenon. So once you've got that structure, you can then uh, again fill in with uh, rafters in, in between those main beams and you can put the flooring on the top. And at that stage, you can see that the pattern of the floorboarding might actually reveal something about the structure underneath. Uh, but in fact, the way they've been constructed uh, what quite often happens is that a, an extra couple of beams get put in, the, the green ones there, which, if you like, obscure the, the pattern that you had before. Uh, then you can put all your rafters in the same way so that the floorboards just look like normal. And at, at that stage, there's really nothing to reveal the fact that there's an interesting structure underneath. So that's the... the basic reciprocal frame, and what I'd like to do now is is just follow where that's appeared in in literature over the years, Um, and as I say, it it goes back to about 1270, uh, a little bit difficult to date exactly, to a a somewhat enigmatic figure called uh, Viard de Honnecourt, who uh, lived and worked in northern France. Uh, in the latter part of the 13th century and he left a notebook with a series of sketches. He was a sort of early Leonardo that uh, sketched all sorts of weird um, uh, designs for a variety of things. And uh, on one page of his notebook is this structure that you'll immediately recognise. I'm not exactly sure why he has these little beams here but hasn't filled in the middle. but underneath is a bit of uh, medieval French, which is, is uh, here. Uh, those of you with any knowledge of French can probably translate that immediately. It's fairly obvious, actually. Uh, what it says is, how to work with a tower or with a house using timbers that are too short. So that's, uh, that's pretty clear. Uh, so here are his timbers that are too short, and he's managing to uh, form that structure. Uh, it's quite a, on the same page. There's all sorts of other things. For instance, this diagram here is a, an arrangement how you can prop a house up if the side of the house is leaving, is leaning. What you do is you put this beam in here, and then it's slightly difficult to see what's going on. But this is a sort of levering arrangement that you lever up this point, and that pushes the side of the house in. So it's quite clear that Villard de Honnecourt had. Um, quite a good understanding of simple mechanisms. Um, But it's it's really not known how much he was talking from practical experience and to to what extent this was just theoretical ideas. The next appearance um, of of the frame is in various of the the works of Leonardo. Um, So the the simple structure appears in, in the Codex Madrid And in the Codex Atlanticus, there are more complicated structures. Uh, Sorry about the the rather poor quality of the the reproduction of those drawings. But here is essentially a repetitive structure that's um, uh, achieved by linking together many of of the, the simple frames. And I've just highlighted here, here you can see the simple reciprocal frame, but by... Uh, attaching lots of them together, you can essentially extend this structure indefinitely. And he also looked at a variant on it, a a, a hexagonal variant. Now, the the next appearance, and and the one that actually made the the structure uh, well known, was the publication uh, uh, of Sebastiano Serlio's Five Books on Architecture, which were first uh, published in, in Italy and then uh, later published in, in English. And one of the, the pictures that appears in that, that uh, book uh, is this one here. It's quite interesting that it's it was in the English version, it's published upside down uh, by comparison with the Italian version. And that's why the perspective of this looks a little bit curious. Uh, but we can recognize that that again is the, um, the uh, reciprocal frame type structure and this bit of text here I've copied out here many accidents like unto this may fall into ye workman's hand which is that a man should lay a ceiling of a house in a place which is 15 foot long and as many foot broad and the rafters should be but 14 foot long and no more wood to be had then in such a case the binding thereof must be made in such sort as you see here set down that the rafters may serve and this will also be strong enough well, that's pretty clear. Um, it's, I'm afraid Serlio was much more pompous and wordy than Viard de Honnecourt, who just said, this is how to do it if, if the timbers are too short. Um, but uh, Serlio is, is the chap um, after whom the, the frame is usually known. Now, it's quite clear from the text that what he is meaning is that the, the space is 15 feet, and The the beams here are 14 feet and so what he is imagining is that each of these is a continuous beam and the same in the other direction and so to construct that you've actually got to weave these beams in amongst each other so it cannot be built in that form. It actually could be built if each of these was was cut at, at this point but it's quite clear that that is not what Serlio meant because he explicitly says that the beams are 14 feet long. Uh, So it's pretty obvious that Serlio was not a practical man. He um, uh, did not know uh, how this would actually be be put together. Then the the next appearance is uh, uh, from John Wallace um, in his Opera Mathematica, well, this this is one of his later publications. It's actually a a summary of his his previous publications. And he includes this uh, picture, which you'll see is is the repeated frame, similar to the one that that appears in Leonardo. Far from clear as to whether uh, Wallace would or would not have known uh, about the Leonardo sketch. He may have invented this uh, quite independently. Now I'm going to come back to to this structure later and follow it through in more detail because uh, it includes a a very important uh, analysis and Wallace is is, uh, an interesting character with with an Oxford connection. Uh, Wallace also sketched some variants of that structure and uh, in fact also analysed this case and you can see this one is actually very closely related to surleo's version of, of the structure in fact this this corner here is exactly the same as as surleo's structure but notice interestingly that wallace has actually broken the beams at each of these points so wallace's structure actually could be constructed unlike surleo's well it would be if wallace hadn't made one mistake which is that you can see that at each of the joints, he shows a little dovetail. And, uh, in fact, if you have those dovetails, again, you can't construct the, the, the structure. You can't get it all to fit together if you, if you make the dovetails sufficiently well. So, again, one wonders whether Wallace was just a, a theoretician. He did apparently make some models of the structure, um, So, uh, but they've been lost. It would be intriguing to know whether the models had those dovetails on the end or whether he realized when, when the thing was actually made that, uh, that you had to make it a different way. And Wallace looked at further variants, um, a, a triangular structure and a whole variety of different forms. This rather interesting one, which has a, a slightly asymmetric pattern. Um, and... Uh, Incidentally, recently, as, as uh, part of a, a fourth-year project, um, uh, Zhong Yu has, has had made uh, this uh, model of um, the, the hexagonal version of, of the structure, um, and um, that's been tested as part of a fourth-year project. And then, as you go later, there are various other authors have... have uh, Sketched the the structure further. Emmy um, uh, uh, is uh, French, and he uh, sketched it in in uh, the 1840s. Uh, the interest here is that this is the only um, uh, five-sided version of the structure that that I've seen. So those are various cases where the the structure has. Um, appeared in literature. Let's now look at the cases when it's actually been built. And I'm afraid they're rather rare. The the earliest one that we know about is in the the, uh, Palazzo Piccolomini in Pienza in Italy. And I feel a distinct urge to have a field trip to go and have a look at this. Um, It was built by uh, Rossellini uh, in uh, the 1400s for uh, Pope Pius II. And this is is the the palazzo. And on the upper level of of that building is the music room, um, which is shown here. And the ceiling of the music room looks like this. And here you can see the, the, uh, the classic reciprocal frame type structure thoroughly vandalized by uh, somebody who's put an awful modern light fitting on it. Um, The the purpose of of this seems to have been purely decorative Um, and uh, we can deduce that from two things. First of all there's uh, uh, an account that uh, effectively the structure is is meant to be uh, a pun on the the name of of, the, um, of Pope Pius, that it essentially represents four interlocking Ps. So here you can see one of the Ps, and then the other the three the, the four uh, beams form four Ps, which uh, stand for uh, Pius Piccolominius Papa Pianus, um, which Pope Pius um, um, uh, Piccolomini from Pienza. Um, so that's one reason why we think it it was just decorative but the other more convincing uh, case is that the music room is is this room um, on the the upper level of the building and what is pretty obvious is that that, that's actually quite a small room compared to the others there are other um, rooms that are much larger and therefore require much longer beams to span them so it can't have been the necessity uh, of um, uh, having to uh, somehow span the room when there weren't beams long enough to, to get across there. Um, so that appears to be purely for decorative purposes. The The first case in the UK is at, at Woolerton Hall near Nottingham, uh, which was um, built uh, in around 1580, um by uh, Smithson uh, for um, Francis Willoughby, who was was a a sort of grandee of the period. And the the Great Hall of uh, Woolerton Hall actually has uh, what appears to be a rather elaborate hammerbeam roof, but uh, that's actually a fake. The the roof uh, does not support the the floor of the room above. The room above is, is this room here, Uh, It's called the Prospect Room and the floor of the Prospect Room is structurally quite independent from the the hammer beam uh, ceiling of of the Great Hall. It's actually quite a difficult structure to to understand, but if if you start with a whole lot of beams that are slightly too short to span the space and then uh, put in between those some some short sections to support the ends of the beams what you can spot is that here is our classical four beam structure and all that has been done is that a whole lot of these have been linked together. At Woolerton it gets a little bit more complicated Uh, first of all move one of the beams a bit from where it was uh, originally Uh, then add a whole lot more beams that um, just complicate matters a bit, then move them around all a bit more, uh, and then paint them all the same (laughs) colour. And uh, essentially, this is what the the plan looks like at, at, at Woolerton. So it's far from obvious that that is actually a reciprocal frame structure. But structurally, hidden underneath are still these Uh, reciprocal structures, and the fact that none of the beams in this direction uh, actually are as long as the span that they have to to cross. So it is indeed a, a reciprocal frame, but a rather complicated one. There's every reason to believe that in this case, the purpose was structural for two reasons. One is it's entirely hidden, and the other is that, well, the, the whole structure is a, a bit of a mess. It's, uh, it's not a nice, elegant um, pattern. And so this genuinely does seem to be a case where Smithson adopted an ingenious solution because he didn't have beams long enough to, to span the Great Hall. Um, still a, a little bit of a nagging doubt because underneath is this, Um, hammer beam structure, why didn't he just exploit that? Why are there these two independent structures? It may well be that um, he was just wanting to explore an unusual structure and and thought, let's give it a go. Uh, There's there's a slightly curious history to uh, the structure at Wollerton Hall, Um, built, I'll say, about 1580 over the years it suffered badly and there was a lot of sagging of the floor Uh, it was repaired in a rather unsatisfactory way in 1830 and uh, another even more unsatisfactory repair in 1953 we'll find out later that 1953 was a singularly bad year for reciprocal frames Um, and What happened was that they installed... uh, I'm sorry about the appalling quality of the picture, but this is the only one I I could get. Uh, What you can see here is is these steel trusses were installed above the beams to hold them up, and effectively they completely block the the prospect room and and ruin that that room on on top of the Great Hall. Um, Fortunately, there is now a, a second phase of conservation work Uh, on uh, Woolerton Hall which is is currently close to the public because of that work Um, and part of that project involves uh, restoring the prospect room and I I haven't been able to find out the exact details of what's going to be done but um, from what I can understand the plan is to uh, remove these trusses and accept the fact that the capacity of the floor is is, uh, somewhat reduced but it should still behave in a a satisfactory way. They're going to do some restoration work on the original structure. So uh, fortunately, that that one is now going to be preserved but uh, in a more satisfactory way than before. We then come to an intriguing reference to a structure in, in Oxford. And this appears in uh, the the Parentalia by Christopher Wren Jr. So this is the biography of the famous Christopher Wren written by his son. And he's reporting in that um, a translated abstract of a a bit of Wallace's uh, Opera Mathematica. So this is supposedly uh, an extract from, from Wallace's Book. but Wallace's book is of course in Latin and this is in English and the other thing is I, I've searched through and I can't find where this piece of text appears in, in the Latin text so I think it must have come from another of Wallace's publications but the translations are, I do not know yet it has been reduced to practice he's talking about the reciprocal frame in more than four pieces so that's obviously the simple one such is one of the floors in the tower of the public schools at Oxford the breadth whereof to the length of the beams is as 3 to 2. Well, that's intriguing. So what is the tower of the public schools? Um, and uh, so I did a little bit of digging on that. Um, the only thing I can think of that's called tends to be called the schools is, of course, the examination schools, which is much later. Uh, but then uh, one or two inquiries revealed that, of course... Um, the quadrangle of the Old Bodleian uh, is known as the school's quadrangle, and the tower uh, in in the the quadrangle is obviously the the tower of the public schools in Oxford. Um, There was a good reason, perhaps, why that would be used uh, to put an interesting structure, because uh, you probably know that the tower is is, uh, often known as the tower of the five orders, because the five different orders of architecture are represented in the tower. In fact, it's it's an architectural abomination because the whole idea of the five orders of architecture is that any one structure should adhere to that principle. But essentially, this um, uh, it's a live textbook. It includes illustrations of each of the forms of architecture, uh, presumably for the students to appreciate. So it seems quite logical that this interesting structure would be um, incorporated there. And, uh, sure enough, it was. Um, uh, The the tower was built in about 1617, and the floor between, uh, this is the lower archive room and the upper archive room, uh, was this uh, reciprocal frame structure. Here you can see the uh, the, uh, familiar structure. So it was built in in 1617, Unfortunately, it was removed in 1953. Um, At that time, uh, all the floors in the Bodleian were being replaced by concrete. Um, Partly, it seems, because the uh, structural performance of the the old timber floors was deemed to be inadequate, um, and partly for fire reasons. It was only when they came to remove the floor at that level that they realised that um, uh, there was the interesting structure underneath because it had been hidden by a later ceiling uh, underneath the the structure. So it was only when they removed the ceiling that they they saw the floor there. Unfortunately, the the architect realised how important it was and the, the timbers were actually taken away and stored let, let me just talk a little bit more about, it. It's a, again, it's a slight variant on the structure. You start with the original uh, four beams, and um, in that particular structure, you, you put inside it another four, uh, and again, I think it's fairly obvious that this has been built mainly for, for decorative purposes, um, add a few extra beams at the end. And uh, that's the, the form of the, the structure that we end up with. So there are uh, four long uh, beams around here. That there's a little detail that hides the corners of them and then the shorter beams there. And at the time uh, when, it, when it was discovered, um, Pantin, who, who was um, uh, in charge of the, the archives, uh, said this is the most exciting discovery. It would be tragic if the opportunity of preserving it is thrown away well the university couldn't afford to uh, put this, the structure back at the time it was going to cost about 300 pounds <laughs> so they decided to store the beams in the basement of the Sheldonian so the beams were, were duly taken to the Sheldonian um, about eight years later uh, the, they needed the space in the basement of the Sheldonian for something else and there's a correspondence that records that the beams were to be taken to the examination schools. Uh, They're not there. (laughs) Somebody has lost the beams. (laughs) They're pretty big beams. I mean, the longest is is about 20 feet. Uh, But tragically, sometime uh, between 1961 and um, uh, and now, uh, they've been lost. Um, I I still hope that there may be a chance that somewhere in Oxford they they may have been preserved. There was some talk about taking them out to the store that the Bodleian uses out at Newnham Courtney, and um, I just hope that perhaps when they turned up with these beams at the the examination schools, uh, somebody said, my goodness, we didn't realise they were that big. You know, you can't possibly put them here. Put them somewhere else. Uh, but I fear that they may have been sawn up for firewood. Um, Anyway, that's the sad story of of the the structure in in Oxford. Um, There's another structure with an Oxford connection, and that's Kelmscote Manor, which is just a a few miles away in in Oxfordshire. And that was built in about uh, 1570, the original part of the building, and extended in about 1665. So this wing here was extended in 1665. It's best known now as as, uh, the home of of William Morris. And the room that uh, you can see, these windows here, are the tapestry room. That's this room here. And uh, when uh, the whole building was being restored in, I think I'm right, it was the 1960s, um, uh, by uh, Donald Insull um, they discovered that the floor of the tapestry room had this uh, intriguing uh, design and again that, that was properly recognised at the time as being a reciprocal frame um, and Andrew Zisserman has, has kindly processed that image for me so that we now look down vertically on it and you can see here the, the familiar pattern of the the four beams. Um, the, the room is almost exactly five metres square, just a little bit more than five metres square. And uh, you can scale off, off the, uh, the picture, the lengths of the beams, which vary from about um, three and a half to just over four metres. So, uh, given that it's a, it's a square room, this is, I think, quite clearly a case of where the the structure has been used from uh, necessity uh, or in order to use up some beams that were too small for the room. Uh, Again, this is hidden underneath the floor and you can see it's a a rather irregular pattern. There's there's no no, um, uh, intention that it should be seen by the public. And then the the final structure, that I'll, I'll talk about it is uh, Pennsylvania State House in uh, Philadelphia, uh, now known as Independence Hall because the US Constitution was, was signed here. So this is where the, the rebels plotted their dastardly um, secession from the crown. Um, and one of the rooms on the, the ground floor here, in fact, there are two similar rooms, uh, the, the assembly room Uh, and another room on the other side, are each 40 feet square and uh, the the, uh, plan of of the structure that uh, supports the ceiling and in fact the same structure is repeated on the first floor as well again shows the the reciprocal frame type structure. Uh, Given that each of those rooms is 40 feet square even these timbers are about 27 feet long And it does seem pretty obvious that this was again used for structural reasons because they couldn't get timbers um, 40 feet long. Um, So uh, just summarising all all those cases, let's just look briefly at the chronology um, of of the, if you like, drawings of the structure and the actual structure. So Villard-de-Honacourt was way ahead of all the rest. Um, And then there's this whole clutch of... of, um, uh, drawings of the structure at about the same time as as a number of them were built. Um, The red ones no longer exist. I I didn't talk about Somerset House. We only know about that structure from a reference in uh, Palladio. Um, And it's interesting that of the the six structures here, three of them are quite clearly decorative. The the Italian one, uh, the Somerset House structure appears to have been just a decorative one, and the school's tower... And then the other three, Wollerton, Kelmscott and Independence Hall, seem to have been from necessity. So uh, the structure has sometimes been used because they couldn't get beams big enough and sometimes just for fun to show the the interesting structure. The Oxford connection comes in really at the tail end of the story, uh, the school's tower in Oxford, Kelmscott, which is only 20 miles away, and Wallace's contribution. And uh, what I'd like to talk now is is a bit more about Wallace and and really make the case that he was our first structural engineer. So who was he? He was uh, born in uh, 1616, uh, appointed as Professor of Geometry in uh, 1649. If you like, geometry was the respectable bit of... Of mathematics at that time and there was a very close link between geometry and architecture Um, he invented the symbols for infinity and greater than or equals to i'd be intrigued to know who invented the symbol for less than or equals to (laughs) Um, he as at that time uh, he had all sorts of interests Uh, He was interested in in architecture, but as I say, at that time, there was very little distinction between geometry and architecture. In theology, um, he was a a cryptographer, um, really uh, quite an interesting character. Uh, And in 1693, he published this compilation of his his earlier works, Opera Mathematica, and died in, in 1703. So, in... Opera Mathematica, um, this diagram appears but the most remarkable thing is that Wallace then goes on to analyze this structure and uh, let me just talk you through what he does for that analysis. And just redrawing it uh, so that the lettering is a bit clearer. uh, The first thing he does is he exploits symmetry. So pretty obviously there's a a fourfold symmetry of the structure and he labels uh, the joints in the structure and uh, identifies that there are actually 25 uh, uh, different joints uh, that he has to analyse. Uh, he actually manages to avoid analysing the, the forces at the, the supports around the outside. And he, he uses these letters essentially for the, the force transmitted between one beam and the other at each joint. Um, he was running out of letters because he wanted to use T for the weight of the timber. And at that time, there was no distinction between I and J. So he uses an ampersand as well as one of his characters. Um, so what does he do next? Here's his diagram. Here's my version of it. He, uh, if we take out one of those timbers, he looks at the forces on the timber... So we've got the weight of the timber itself, the reactions at the end, and the loads that are coming in from the adjacent timbers. And he takes moments about the right-hand end and moments about the left-hand end and writes those down perfectly correctly. Quite interesting that if um, we were doing this as a first-year structures problem, probably we'd take moments about one end and then use vertical equilibrium and the the equations would be slightly easier. But obviously, Wallace had a very tidy mind, and it's it's actually a a more symmetric operation simply to take moments about both ends rather than using vertical equilibrium. Um, So a little bit of insight into the way Wallace thought about the problem. So for the 25 joints, he writes down his 25 equations, Um, and these five at the end are the, the little short beams at the edge of the structure, the rest of the, the longer beams. And he then sorts out his 25 simultaneous equations, slogs through all of that, goes through lots of intermediate results, and eventually arrives at a solution for each load in terms of T with a, a, a fraction here. That, of course, the solution comes out in a rather funny order, and so he sorts it out, A, B, C, etc., into a, a sensible order. Some of his fractions are rather curious. You know, eight and, and this fraction over this one. But this actually has a half hidden in the top. <laughs> um, and, but it, it's, it does have a certain sense because lots of the, the terms have this same um, uh, value on the bottom. So um, he's, he's doing it in a fairly sensible sort of way. Um, The important thing, really, is that he got it right. Um, Katrina Halliwell did a fourth-year project on on this a few years ago, supervised by Paul Taylor and Tony Blakeborough, and uh, she made uh, a structure which she she tested and also repeated uh, Wallace's analysis um, uh, using MATLAB um, was it MATLAB or Mathematica? Mathematica. He's a Mathematica fan. Yeah. Um, and Wallace got it right, which is pretty amazing to solve 25 simultaneous equations and, uh, and get it right. Apparently Wallace also um, worked out the, the um, I think it was the, the square root of three to some astronomical number of decimal places uh, while he was going to sleep. Or, uh, <laughs> was a curious chap. Um, uh, so anyway it 's been been verified that he, he got the right solution now of course the the final stage that we would usually do is we'd then pick out the the most heavily loaded member and analyze that in a bit, bit more detail and the way we'd do that in in a modern way is we would either look at the the shear force or the bending moment in that timber and the the, the most heavily loaded one is the one near the middle, so it has these forces A, A, the weight of the timber, C, and, and uh, B here. And if you draw the shear force and bending moment diagrams, they look like this. Uh, the, the, um, the blue lines, which are almost hidden, are if you idealize the load as just being a point load in the center, or you might do it slightly more accurately and distribute the load. And you can work out the maximum shear force, which is the same in each case. Actually, the, the maximum shear force is at this joint here. And the maximum bending moment is, just differs slightly whether you take a distributed load or a point load. And that's what we would do at that, that last stage. Unfortunately, Wallace falls over at that final hurdle. Um, that He does an obscure calculation, which, as far as I can tell, represents either working out A plus B over 2, so that's the loader here plus half this one, or it's A plus T plus C over 2. And I can't see that that makes any sense whatsoever. Um, So he picks out the most heavily loaded member and then does, as far as I can tell, a nonsense calculation, which is a great pity because he'd got all the rest of it right. So why do I think that that Wallace is... um, the,
0: uh,
1: our earliest structural engineer he, what are the stages in his calculation he uses symmetry to simplify the problem he idealises the loading and the geometry he then labels nodes in the structure systematically writes down the equations for each element in the structure assembles those linear equations solves the equations reorders the solution into a convenient form, finds the most highly stressed element, and then does a more detailed analysis. Admittedly, at this stage, he gets it slightly wrong. But while that's talking about Wallace's analysis, equally well, that could be the description of the stages that we would go through in a modern finite element analysis of a complex structural problem. And I'm pretty convinced that Wallace was the first person actually to attempt what we would call a serious structural analysis of anything more than, uh, than a structure that just consists of one or two small components. So I think Oxford can quite legitimately claim to have um, not actually just uh, Britain's first structural engineer, but I think in the modern sense, probably the world's first structural engineer who actually did a serious structural engineering calculation. Um, and Wallace is known for uh, a, v- a variety of reasons um, uh, because of his mathematical contributions. Um, and I think, actually, he also deserves recognition for his contribution to structural engineering. So that's a chance I would, would maintain. He's, he's our first structural engineer. Okay, I'll just finish off in a few minutes um, on where the structure's popped up elsewhere. Um, And once you know about this structure, it pops up all over the place. Um, I was in Shanghai um, last year, and here's the pattern in a window in uh, an old house in a village near Shanghai. Here's a, a bit of a different variants, it's not really quite the reciprocal structure In a, um, this is just in a, a balustrade but you can see again the principle that you use lots of short members to, to fill in the structure uh, here I am having a rather odd lunch which consisted of a, a soup filled dumpling which was a bit of a challenge to eat uh, and what do we see in the background? there's our structure <laughs> and even more amazing, I then walked around the corner and there was this old uh, Chinese uh, carriage and the, in, in a bit more detail, there, there's the back of the carriage and there's Wallace's structure. <laughs> um, so th- there's no doubt that this uh, particular design has, has turned up a lot in um, Chinese art. Interesting to know whether it's also turned up as a, as a, uh, as a structure. I, I'm not so sure about that. And, of course, there's quite a fashion of Chinese-style um, uh, uh, art in, in the UK, and, and I spotted this one at, at Wellington Hall in, in uh, Northumberland, um, the seat of the, the Trevelyans. And there, this is just a garden seat. There's the design appearing in the back of that. All sorts of people have got interested in this recently. There's a rather intriguing Dutch... Um, Mathematician come artist, a chap called uh, Rhinus Rerloffs, if I've got it, well, sorry, Rerloffs. And he's built uh, a number of these types of frames, a, a rather large scale one in, in rough timber, um, the, the hexagonal variant here, and this intriguing uh, spherical one. And, and what he seems to be fascinated by is the fact that these structures are made out of lots of pieces. Uh, And he focuses on the fact that uh, each of these has four points of contact. uh, And it's by bracing the forces between those four points of contact that you can make these different structures. And he's explored all sorts of different variants of that. Uh, Has an excellent website. So if you just um, search for his name with a a well-known search engine, uh, you'll, you'll find all sorts of pictures of different structures there. Um, the Japanese have certainly adopted this structure in, in a number of cases, and uh, uh, the most notable architect who seems to have used it in, in Japan is uh, Ishii, uh, and um, he, he's done various structures which involve the reciprocal frame. Here's a, a variant that involves... Um, a a large number of of interlocking timbers uh, at uh, a puppet theatre that he designed. And this is uh, part of the exhibition space and I'm afraid it's a terrible photograph uh, but the the roof of the main theatre area also uses a reciprocal structure. You can probably just see that these short beams are interlocking there. So uh, it's certainly an idea that that, uh, is being used in in Japanese architecture, as well as in, in Chinese art. And uh, recently, uh, Zhong Yu has, has been exploring three-dimensional versions of the frames. So you can, we've already got a, a frame that interlocks uh, in two dimensions, and Zong's been exploring what happens when you also uh, interlock that in a third dimension with uh, timbers that uh, automatically fit together. So uh, that's just a, um, the latest variant of uh, these different possibilities. So I've been trying to follow through a bit of a history of um, an interesting structural engineering problem. Um, as you, you can see, there's a long history in uh, art and, and drawing going back to Via de Honnacourt in, in the 13th century. There are some Interesting structures, um, some of them decorative, some of them practical. Um, An Oxford connection with a bit of a tragic story associated with it because of the destruction of the the floor in the school's tower. I think there's quite a lot more still to be found out. And with a bit of luck, uh, there might even be some timbers still to be found (coughs) somewhere in Oxford. So if anybody sees them... They're about 10 inches square and about 20 feet long. Um, So we can but hope. So, thank you very much. He did. Uh, he, does, he, he doesn't actually reproduce a back substitution in uh, certainly not in Opera Mathematica. Uh, but I would like to bet that he checked by back substitution. Yeah, otherwise, the chances of him getting it right first time would be so slim. He, he must have got it wrong a few times and, and done the back substitution and, and then yeah. repeated it till
2: he got it right. We've had a fascinating talk, I hope everybody will agree. We started off in France in 1217. Uh, and we finished with uh, engineering department fourth year projects, what's uh, <laughs> that, 730 odd years. Um, the Wallace connection is very interesting, and, and perhaps I could just make a comment on that. There's a uh, more recent connect Oxford connection, which is the Oxford book, 800 years of the mathematical sciences in Oxford, where we have an editor and a co- contributor in the audience. And the reason I got interested in Wallace was that uh, Robin Lawson gave a talk on the history of mathematics in Oxford showing Wallace's picture. And I thought that would make nice support for your project. And I hadn't realized quite what an explosion of activity in the number of wooden models mm. <laughs> built over about the last five years, which is very nice. We've heard about where a guy wants to go on his summer holidays. I think we'll all join him on a trip to Italy. Um, not sure about Penn State. Uh, is that a Puritan connection, I wonder, through back to Wallace in, in Oxford?
1: I don't know what the connection was there, how they knew of that.
2: Yeah. We've, we've been yeah. off to China, we've been off to Japan, we've been all over the mm. world. We've heard some really quite sophisticated mathematical analysis dating to about the, 18, uh, the 1670s. Actually, it's interesting to know whether any present professors in Oxford could work out a cube or, you know, square root of three to 20 decimal places. Get the answer right, right in their heads. Actually, if anybody's interested, the twentieth figure is three. <laughs> anyway, I think I'll, I'll, I'll finish up. I think we should thank Guy for an absolutely fascinating talk.